Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me uh, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And in these short 12 verses, what we're going to look at is comfort in persecution. Last week, it's interesting that we uh, came back from conference and the Lord had given me that message uh, concerning the last days in persecution. And so as we lead into this, it's even going to speak to us that much more. But the church at Thessalonica, remember that they were a young church, a vibrant church. We're told in Acts chapter 17 that Paul was there for three Sabbath weeks. Many believe that the church was that young, maybe a couple of weeks older. But Paul had to leave there because of persecution. And so Paul's going to be encouraging them because they were going through so many trials. And many at the church at Thessalonica were thinking, hey, this is the tribulation that is spoken about in Scripture. We missed the rapture of the church. And so Paul's going to clarify that. And it's a good teaching to understand because, listen, 1950 years ago, here's the church at Thessalonica thinking that the rapture of the church has already taken place, that they're in the tribulation now. And how much more do we need to be aware of these things? And so I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us. Now, as we do, when we get into a new book, I like to give a little bit of background, so bear with me. The author of this second epistle is Paul the Apostle. It's written to the church at Thessalonica that he actually planted back in Acts chapter 17 in his second missionary journey. Now, the date of the writing is around 54 A.D. Paul wrote from Corinth. He wrote First and Second Thessalonians. Many believe this was, uh, if not, his first two epistles, but the earliest of his writings. Now, the theme of Second Thessalonians is the same as First Thessalonians. And the theme is the soon return of Jesus Christ. And we know, we understand, if Jesus is going to return bodily, it's called the parousia of Christ, then there has to be the rapture of the church. There has to be the signing of a covenant with this man called Antichrist. It's a league that he forms with the world leaders to bring in peace and safety. And then we will see Antichrist comes into his office and the seven years of tribulation. According to uh, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, Jacob's trouble. Now, this epistle, the second letter, the purpose, a little bit different, a little more encouragement. It's fourfold. Listen to it. Number one, Paul writes to correct the error that they were going through the tribulation time now. Secondly, to encourage their faith through their current persecution. And that's important because a lot of times, young Christians especially, when they go through their trials, their tribulations, their hardships, they think, hey, it's easier in the world. I'll go back to Babylon. I'll go back to Egypt. I didn't have this much trouble, you know, in the world. And now I come to saving grace. And so Paul's going to encourage their faith. Thirdly, Paul encourages them in this area. Assurance that the day of the Lord had not yet come. That they were not in the seven years of tribulation. Oh, they were going through trials, they were going through hardships, they were going through pain, but they hadn't seen nothing yet. Even today, church, we look at some of the things that are going on all around the world. 
We see the floods in the Midwest. We see the fires in, in Southern California. Still, they're recuperating from that earthquake in China. The situation in Burma, un unbelievable. Katrina is still not complete as far as all the people. They're in the New Orleans area. But these are just the birth pangs. This is not the finality. This is not the uh, seven years of tribulation where we see 21 judgments. The seven seals, the seven bowl judgments, and the seven trumpet judgments. Judgments that man has never seen. Imagine 100-pound hail mixed with fire. Man has never seen that. That time is coming. And so Paul is encouraging them. The assurance here, point three, that the day of the Lord had not yet come. And then fourthly, listen to this. Paul warns them against idleness. There were those obviously at the church of Thessalonica uh, that were throwing in the towel. Well, Jesus is coming. Might as well just sell everything. Might as well just give everything away. Let's get some white sheets and let's wait up on a mountain for Jesus to return. You see, there's a lot of Christians with that concept. I was thinking about this. Uh, Warn them against idleness. The Bible tells us to occupy till Jesus comes. We're to be busy for the Lord. Oh, we can see the signs of the times. Back in 1982, we were in Southern California, and there was this lining up of the planets. Some of you might recall. And they were saying that the centrifugal force and the reason of the lightning of the planets it was going to react and cause the rapture of the church. Obviously, it didn't happen. And then there was 88 Reasons, a book that was written by a man named Wisenot. In 1988, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Was Coming. Well, then he wrote a sequel the next year, 89 Reasons Why He's Coming This Year. And obviously, it hasn't happened. And back in 1982, listen to this. I was a young Christian, just starting to serve the Lord. And there was this Christian jargon that was coming up. Hey, Jesus is coming. Planets are lining up, man. Hey, we need to go get credit cards. We need to buy new cars. We need to buy new houses. Let's leave the rest of the world in debt. Some of those people are still paying on their charges today. Occupy till he comes. Be careful when somebody gives you a date, Jesus is coming. I can guarantee you he's not coming on that day. And so Paul's encouraging the church. And it's going to be an encouragement to us. Short 12 verses. Let's begin here now in verse 1 and 2. As Paul does in all his letters, he always has this greeting, this salutation. And it's so beautiful. Paul, Silvanus, which is, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to part two. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. And so Paul's greeting here. He encourages them. He's in Corinth and he's writing to the church at Thessalonica. He's writing to them and basically Timothy's with him and Silvanus is with him, which is Silas. And so I always like to give a little bit of introduction, if I have time, concerning the names. Remember that Paul was Saul of Tarsus, and he was a tyrant. He was wicked. He was evil. He was mean. The Bible says in Acts chapter 9, he had letters in hand, and he was like a snorting bull. His, his nostrils would flare in and out. That's how mean he was. And he was going to Damascus with letters in hand, bring back Christians. 
to place them on trial. God changes his name to Paul. The word Paulus means little one. And then he speaks about uh, Silas here, Silvanus. It's a Greek name. He is totally a Greek. And the word Silas means to lead. And this man stayed with him, ministering. And it allowed Paul to understand the culture more of the Greeks. And then Timothy. Remember Timothy? He called him uh, my son in the spirit. The word Timothy means to venerate God. Now, what's interesting about Timothy, he was a young man. He was a young pastor, and he had some stomach problems, some physical ailments. But he struggled also in ministry. Once we get to the letters of First and Second Timothy, you'll see. But Timothy's interesting. He's half Jew, and he's half Greek. And he was raised by his mother and his grandmother, and they nurtured him, listen, in the ways of the Lord. But look at the greeting in verse 1. This letter is to the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the church, or those in God, our heavenly Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, our Messiah. And he's dealing with the church at Thessalonica. And he comes into these two Siamese twins that we use in the New Testament. We always speak of them, especially in the Pauline letters. The Siamese twins of the New Testament, grace and peace. But you need to understand this. You see, man is always looking for peace. I want peace, and I'll do anything in my power to get that peace, even if it means war. I want peace. But the problem of the peace of this world, it's temporal. The peace of this world is plastic. The peace of this world is here today and gone tomorrow. But the peace of God, church, it's everlasting. The peace of God is for eternity. But you must first come to his saving grace. So he speaks about grace. Grace first because I have now come to salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the church of Thessalonica. He gives me his grace, his unmerited favor. I deserve judgment. You deserve judgment. The church of Thessalonica, they deserve judgment. But because we've cried out, called upon the name of the Lord, he gives us his grace, unmerited favor. And now, secondly, because I have God's grace, and this is the church at Thessalonica, they have his peace now. Even through the trials, the tribulations, the hardships, the pains. Who doesn't go through hardship and pain and tribulation? Who doesn't go through trials? And so God gives us peace in those trials. And we're going to see that established this morning. The word peace that he gives us here. It's I have this rest now in Christ. I have this quietness in Christ. You see, before uh, we come to saving grace, in order to get some kind of peace, we would do drugs, we would do alcohol. We do the things and the pleasures of the world, trying to appease ourselves, trying to fix ourselves. And the sad part, after you come down from that stupor, you had to face the world again. But now through salvation, he gives us this, these Siamese twins, grace and peace. The peace that passes all understanding. Paul's encouraging the church because now he's going to begin to lay down the ground rules. This position of persecution. Look at verse 3 now. Paul speaks here uh, in these last verses concerning God's final judgment and glory. It hasn't come yet. 
These are just trials. These are just persecution. The church is still being persecuted today if you look at the, you know, third world standards. And I like what Paul begins here. The word bound is very precious here, very powerful. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows. You see, as I go through trials, you go through trials. God is establishing your faith. He is causing your faith to grow in Him, to trust Him. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows. And then He takes it further, exceedingly does it grow. And the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. There was such a love and a compassion and a grace of this church at Thessalonica for each other, but also for others. In fact, Paul in the first letter says, uh, the churches in, in Macedonia and Acacia, man, they see you guys as examples of your love, your grace, your mercy. And so look at the translation of verse 3 now. The word bound here is strong in the Greek. We owe God to be thankful always for you, the church of Thessalonica. And so I asked this question, why? Because he paid the full price for them and for us even this morning. Notice Paul says that it's fitting. It's fitting. Another translation, uh, it's worthy. You're worthy. You're proper. You're deserving. He's talking to the church of Thessalonica. And again, I asked that question, why? Because of their faith in Christ Jesus. That's growing, he says here, leaps and bounds. And then there's that agape love that all have at Thessalonica. They have it for one another. And they have it for other churches. That's the kind of love that we need. This love that abounds, the Bible says it increases. One of the joys I get as a pastor is when I hear testimony of people say, Oh, I've heard about your church. I've heard about Calvary Chapel, Las Cruces. I heard about you guys give food out to the needy. I heard about that you guys help those in need. I heard about, you know, and the list goes on. That's a testimony of you, the body of Christ. That's the testimony of God's love in and through you, that you just don't keep it, you just don't hoard it, but you desire to share it with others. You see, agape love is always giving and never wanting anything in return. Agape love is giving yourself, giving of your time, giving of your finances, giving of everything. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it tells us that we present our bodies, what? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. This was the church at Thessalonica. Their love was increasing. Their love for God. And then their love for one another. Their love for the brethren. And let me tell you, the enemy was trying to take them down. Hey, you're in the tribulation now. You guys missed the rapture of the church. I mean, can you imagine what they were going through? Now, I was thinking of this, this love. Because the Bible, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, we find the nine fruit of the Spirit. Now, it's interesting. It begins with love. And so many times we're so quick just to rattle off the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, of the fruit of the Spirit, that is. But it begins with agapeo love. It begins with agape love, that love that's always giving, never wanting anything in return. Now, in 
Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, he begins, the gifts of the Holy Spirit here, or the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Now, years ago, I memorized these, and I used to just spit them out. But you begin with love. You see, once agape love, and go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and read that position of love, that place of love. Look at John 3, 16. That's where we see love. Love exemplified where? At the cross. Jesus died to give us life. We're to learn to die daily. And watch what God will do in and through our lives. The fruit of the Spirit begins with love. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of homework. In John chapter 15, it speaks about Jesus is talking through the whole chapter. And here's the consequences of this chapter. I am the vine, you are the branches. He is the vine, we're the branches. We nurture from him. And the Bible says we produce fruit. And so Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, it begins with the first fruit. The fruit is love. But it's interesting, as you go through John chapter 15, listen how it increases. Jesus said that they're going to know you basically by your fruit. They're going to know you by the love of Christ. They're going to know you by the love for the brethren. But then he goes on. You will produce fruit. And then you're going to produce more fruit. And I like this. You're going to produce much fruit. Don't be satisfied where God has you. Always desire to increase. Lord, use me some more. Lord, use me for your glory. Lord, that I might be a witness and a testimony of your love. This was the church at Thessalonica. Now, let's go back to our text. Look at verse 4. And then Paul says, so that we ourselves boast. I like this. We boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and your faith. Paul boasted, he bragged about the church at Thessalonica and, and all your persecutions and your tribulations that you endure, that you're able to persevere. And so here, the word boast, Paul's heart to the church at Thessalonica. The King James says glory. We glory of you to all the other churches of God. And the word glory, we boast of you. We rejoice of, of the work that God's done in your hearts. I like this translation. We brag about you guys. Hey, you haven't seen anybody till you've seen the church at Thessalonica. Young church, vibrant church. They're on fire for the Lord. Paul had a special place for them. He bragged about them because, he says, your patience and your faith. Again, they're a young church. But Paul saw their patience. The word patience, Paul saw their endurance. The word faith, Paul saw their, their faith, their endurance, their assurance. The word is, is for faith. All this in Christ Jesus. And then he says, I see this in all your persecutions and all your tribulations. Now the word persecutions, we've already broken this down. He's speaking about those that are pursuing you in afflictions, those that are coming against you, pursuing you, trying to trip you up, trying to take you down. And so Paul knew this because he faced it. And the reason we brag of you is because you're enduring. 
You're persevering. Listen to the word persevering. You're putting up with these persecutions. You're putting up with those that are pursuing you. You're holding yourself up to these who persecute you. You're holding your own, in other words. Now, basically, there were two groups of people that were coming against the early church. Two groups of people that were coming against the church at Thessalonica. It's still the same today. That first group, though, was considered Christian. They were called the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers were Jews that had come to saving grace. But they were laying trips on the people. Listen, Jesus is okay. Jesus is fine. I believe in salvation through Christ. But, and always be careful when you hear that. Jesus is okay, but. Jesus is okay, plus. And all of a sudden, they throw in works. And this is what the Judaizers were coming in. They were saying, listen, Jesus is salvation. We understand that. We believe he's the Messiah. But you need to continue in the law. You need to continue in the meat uh, laws, and the dairy product laws. You need to continue in the Sabbath day laws. You need to continue. And they were just throwing these trips on them. I don't know if you've ever come across Christians, but, you know, they'll tell you, listen, brother, uh, you need to stop smoking or you're not safe. Well, wait a minute. I should stop smoking because it's not good for my health. But that's not going to take you to hell. Oh, it might kill you early and you might go to heaven early. But that's not going to take you to hell. Oh, brother, you shouldn't have a glass of wine. You shouldn't have those beers. Now, the Bible says you shouldn't be drunk with wine. But there's not a problem. Be careful. Oh, years ago, somebody, brother, you still have a TV? Yeah. Oh, you need to get rid of that, brother. You need to get rid of that idol. Oh, really? Do you want it? Well, no, I really don't want it. I told you about one of my best friends. He came into church and he was all, he says, Bob, he goes, the Lord's taking the TV away from me. I go, praise the Lord. Good. I'm glad for you. I says, I still like to watch some sports from time to time. No, God's taking it away from me. He says, I want to donate it to the church. I go, okay, leave it right there. About three, four weeks, six weeks later, he comes moping around. His eyes were down to the ground. His head's lowered. And I knew something was up. I didn't know what it was. And then he kind of roundabout. You still have that TV? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I sold it. <laughs> well, what happened to your conviction? And so we have to be careful, church. This was a thorn in Paul's flesh, these Judaizers. The book of Galatians is so beautiful. Grace and justification by faith. That's what Paul speaks about. But I want you to listen to this first verse. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has charmed you that you not obey the truth? That Jesus Christ, I'm paraphrasing this, is the only way. Well, listen, you're saved if you go to church on Saturday. You're saved if you don't, you know, eat meat and, you know, dairy products together. You're saved if you, be careful. Man, you're saved because Jesus died for you, cut and dry. And so this is one of the things that were going on there. And then who was the second oppressor against the early church and, and against the church at Thessalonica? It was the Roman Empire. They oppressed Rome greatly. And so there are those today, just like the Judaizers, they're going to come into the church and they're going to tell you, don't do this, don't do that. And you're going to get oppressed by the government conditions. It's happening even today. 
And so let's go to verse 5 now. He takes it further. And Paul's setting this up now concerning these persecutions of your faith. And he goes into it. In verse 5 he says, Which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, not that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. These persecutions, Paul's saying, came from man. They didn't come from God. The Judaizers were attacking. The Romans were attacking. Now, God allows these things. But Paul is saying here, when the judgments of God come, it will be manifested evidence of his righteous judgment. In other words, man and the world will know that it's God's hand on these judgments. And again, the world hasn't seen seven sealed judgments. The world hasn't seen seven trumpet judgments. The world hasn't seen seven bold judgments. But that time is coming. But the judgments you're seeing now, this, this, these are just persecutions, he says. In fact, in the time of the, uh, the Great Tribulation, the book of Revelation says that man's going to hold up their fist to God because they can't stand the judgments that are coming upon them. Now, we do see uh, the birth pangs today. We see the floods, we see the rumors of wars, we see wars, we see earthquakes, we see pestilence, we see famines, but these are just the beginning of the birth pangs. Paul goes on here in verse 5, all this persecution will be counted, listen to what he says, worthy of these persecutions. Place into your account, worthy to be persecuted. They persecuted Jesus. Man is worthy of the kingdom of God, but he's going to go through persecutions. Here's the key for all the church, past, present, and future. We are accounted worthy to suffer persecution for Jesus' sake. Now listen to the King James here in the beginning of verse 5. The manifest evidence. The Greek is saying the fact that the Thessalonians and all the church suffers is proof text, listen, shows forth the evidence that one day, God will pour out his wrath. That's why it's called righteous judgment. When it happens to the world, man is going to know that it's from God. But in the meantime, we go through trials. We go through hardships. We go through persecutions. If you study Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you have the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. There's a church called the church at Smyrna. The church at Smyrna was uh, the church that was plummeted. The church that was in persecution. She was named after the myrrh plant. In order to extract the fragrance from the myrrh plant, it had to be crushed. And it's so evident, the more you crush the church, the greater the stronger, the faithful the church becomes. It's a proven fact, church. Now, I'm going to give you some homework. Because we all suffer judgment, some type or another. God uses our sufferings, our trials, our tribulation. Listen, for our maturity. For our maturity. In James chapter 1, James writes, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, various testings, various, various sufferings. Because God is building patience, endurance, stamina, strength, perseverance. God has a reason and a purpose 
the things that he does in my life, the things that he does in your life. Here's the two homework assignments. I want you to study Romans chapter 8, verses 17 through 30. How God through the trials matures us. And then Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Again, how God matures us uh, through the suffering. Now listen to this verse. Write it down if you're taking notes. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Paul writes to young Timothy. He knew Timothy was going through stomach problems. He knew Timothy was going through hardships as a young preacher. They were attacking him. And he tells them in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I think of Johnny Erickson Tata, a young girl that's for, I think it's been 30 years plus since she had that diving accident and she broke her neck. She only has movement of her neck and her head. I mean, she's bound to that wheelchair. Her husband has to get her up in the morning and to take care of business with her. And, and then she writes, she paints, she puts this stick in her mouth. That's how she does it. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I, I'm amazed all the time because I murmur, I complain. Listen, Lord, my back's hurting me. Lord, my knees are hurting me. Lord, my feet are hurting me. And then you run into somebody that's worse than you. And you say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I'm sorry. It's just natural. Don't feel guilty of it. We all go through it. But we all suffer. We all have grades of suffering, if you may. And so Paul is saying, these are just trials. But when the tribulation comes, man will know. Man will know. Look at verse 6 now. Since it is a righteous thing, I like that, with God to repay, with tribulation, those who trouble you. Let God take care of your enemies. Let God take care of the Judaizers. Let God take care of the trials and tribulations in your life. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay, with tribulation, those who trouble you. Listen to the words righteous thing. Seeing that it is the just thing with God to repay. Listen, to pay back with tribulation. The word tribulation, God's going to pay back with tribulation. You ever said this? I've said it before. Uh, why do the wicked prosper? <laughs> I've said that many times. And I finally looked it up. I found out who said it. It was Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1. Why do the wicked prosper? And then he says, the faithless live at ease. Lord, that's not fair. I struggle with two jobs, Lord. I'm barely making ends meet. I try to go to church as much as possible. Lord, I've been serving you for, and look at this guy down the street. He's a bum. He sells drugs and he's rich and famous. And we'll look at that. Why do the wicked prosper? Their day's coming. What we should do is pray for their salvation. Because if they don't come to Christ, they are going to suffer the seven years of tribulation. Radical statement. Now, this word tribulation. He says, since it, it, it is a just thing with God to repay, with tribulation, those that, that trouble you, God's going to repay them. The word that's used here for tribulation is not that they're pursuing you. 
But the Greek is stronger. To press down as the grape is pressed down, to extract, extract the, the wine uh, from the drink, for the drink. The wine presses. It's a radical statement here. In, in the coming judgments, there's going to be great affliction. There's going to be great tribulation. And so it's a just thing that God is going to take care of this unless they repent. Let me give you a little insight here. In Revelation chapter 14, take the note down. I'm not going to cover it all. I'm just going to uh, share two scriptures. Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. John the Beloved is having a vision of Armageddon. Armageddon is that great battle that everybody speaks about. Hollywood makes constantly movies about it. And remember this word here, tribulation, to be pressed down. In Revelation 14, verse 19 and 20, I'm going to read it to you. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth, and he gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Listen. Verse 20, as the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepresses up to the horse's bridle to 1,600 furlongs. Let me give you the scenario here. If you go to Mount Carmel today, you look over the valley of Jezreel. You look over this valley of Armageddon. This is called the Valley of Megiddo. It's also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. What's interesting, uh, this number here, 1,600 furlongs, they measure this place. It's a perfect battleground. There's been battles there before. It, it basically is about 85 miles wide. It's about 200 miles long. The battle that's coming, the blood of the horse up to the horse's bridle, uh, that's incredible. I, any of you own horses, you can understand. Uh, where's it at? About four feet? Hope to God it's not a Clydesdale, right? That's a lot of blood. A lot of blood. And it's been pressed down. It's been pressed down. That's the judgment that Paul is speaking about. That's the judgment that's coming. It's a righteous thing with God to repay tribulation for those that trouble you, those that afflict you. Let God take care of the Judaizers. Let God take care of, you know, the Roman Empire. And he did. And God is still taking care of governments. God is still taking care of those that come in and try to infiltrate the church and try to undermine the teachings of Jesus Christ. It's amazing how God works. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Let God take care of business. Now, I don't like to boast on, you know, Lord, judge them. And Lord, that they would come to repentance. That they would come to saving grace. Now, I thought about Jeremiah like we shared. Jeremiah 12, 1, Lord, why do the wicked prosper? You know, Jeremiah's ministry estimated to be about 55 years. The scholars will tell you that Jeremiah had no converts he was called a weeping prophet. Nobody listened to his prophecies. Nobody listened to his word of God. In fact, they often beat him, put him in stocks, put him in, in cisterns. I'll tell you what. I thank God for the people that do want to hear the gospel in this community. But imagine Jeremiah. Nobody listening. Why did the wicked prosper, Lord? 
Lord, just wipe them out. And there's the hand of God. There's the grace of God. Let's go back to our text now. Look at verse 7. And again, Paul's encouraging them. You're not in the tribulation. But the tribulation is coming for those that don't receive Christ. Those that will go through the seven years of tribulation. And so here, he begins in verse 7, promise. He encourages them. He comforts them. Uh, those that are in the church afflicted. They're happening today. Look at verse 7. And to give you who are troubled, you, the church at Thessalonica, you, the church at Calvary Chapel, that are troubled, you're afflicted. You're going through your trials. Look in our bulletin. We have a list of people that are having hardships. Some, some are with cancer. Some with back pains. Some with hurts and pains. And again, yours is just as important as it is to the Lord than it is to, you know, Johnny Erickson Tata because of God's love. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And listen to the encouragement here now. Paul is speaking of those in the church who are troubled. The word is afflicted, who are suffering. They'll find rest one day. Johnny Erickson Tata one day will be upright. We probably will not recognize her with her new body. Because you identify her in the wheelchair. You identify her. There's a brother that comes to Calvary Chapel, Alamogordo, from time to time, and he came here. His name is Billy. And I've known Billy probably about 20 years now. And I, 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 the last time I saw him was probably about two years ago. Billy's blind. But you'd never know it until he runs into a wall. Because that's the way Billy is. But he'll come up and he'll preach. He'll come up and he'll teach. Loves the Lord. But very seldom do people know that he's blind. But one day he will see. One day he'll be set free. And so here in verse 7, Paul speaks of those in the church who are suffering. There's coming a time of relief or ease with all the church when our Lord Jesus Christ is revealed at his return, at his appearing. When Jesus returns, with his mighty angels with him. Now, we already taught last in our last reading, our last book, that is. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Jesus will first return for his church at the rapture or the harpasal or the great snatching away of the church. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who remain will be caught up together with them in the air to return to heaven and then the seven years of tribulation begin. Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Then Jesus and his church will return at the final battle in victory. And we know that he stands at, at, at the, the gate beautiful. And it splits in two. And victory and will be declared in scripture. And we know that that time, when it comes, every eye shall see him. According to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Jesus will return bodily. Be careful as the church at Thessalonica. Some were saying the rapture of the church has already happened. Some were saying, hey, we're in the tribulation now. There's teachings like that even today. Listen, there has to be a rapture of the church. There has to be, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, a signing of the league, a covenant with the world leaders by Antichrist. 
And he's going to usher in what he calls peace and safety. And then he'll declare himself at the three and a half year point uh, to be Messiah. And the Jews will flee into the rock city Petra. But at the end of the seven years of tribulation, the church will return with Christ. It'll be a bodily return. They will see him. They will know him. 25 years ago, that was not possible. It's very possible uh, today. Now look at verse 8. And then he goes into these judgments. You see, you got to catch it how he goes back and forth in a sense. In flaming fire, now this is the judgment. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. Radical statement. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, such a contrast. Listen, you're going through your trials. You're going through your tribulation. But the time will come. The time will come when it'll be all over with. But what about those that never receive Christ? So here's the contrast. But those who are not saved. Those who are not born again of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus returns. Listen to the exhortation. Their domain will be flaming fire, punishment on those who do not know God in a personal relationship. There are those that don't like that term, the born-again experience. Well, fine, if you don't like that, has there been change in your life? Has there been a, a metamorphosis? Has there been this transformation that only God can do in our hearts? And so it comes through a personal relationship on those who refuse to obey not only salvation, but the good news of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is that Jesus gave us his word. We're to obey his word. Oh, we understand John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we're obviously supposed to believe in him. And we're supposed to come to the place of salvation. Now, we know this for a fact. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it, it is called the doctrine of the resurrection. Remember, if there be no resurrection, we're men and women most miserable, pitied. You poor Christians, you go to church for nothing. But Jesus rose on the third day. Here's the scenario. Jesus was born, and when we see that baby in the, in the manger, he was born to die. Jesus was crucified, he was buried, he rose again, he ascended into heaven in glory, and the promise that he gave, I will return for my church, and then there will be a seven years of tribulation. That's what the scriptures teach. And so Paul's encouraging the church at Thessalonica. Now verse 9 is precious, because this is a fact, this is a promise. Now, we often share with people, listen, you don't want to go to hell. There's wailing. There's gnashing of teeth where the worm dies not. There's remembrance in heaven. The five senses are working. I mean, you can see, taste, smell, the whole thing. We get that from Luke chapter 16. We understand the, the gnashing of teeth and such according uh, to the parable of the tares in Matthew chapter 13. And so we're aware of all these things. But here in verse 9, the greatest judgment is separation from God for eternity. Eternity. Now, we're separated from God now, and then we come to saving grace, and we come into this relationship. 
And we're looking forward one day to enter the gates of heaven. And he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter the glory of the Lord. In our new bodies, kick back time, man. No more glasses. No more worried about Jenny Craig or anybody. <laughs> Some of you see the commercials, huh? Look at verse 9. <laughs> and these shall be punished with great everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. The greatest judgment is separation from God for eternity. Eternity. I cannot understand that. I cannot fathom that. You see, as free moral agents, we have a choice. We must choose eternal life with Jesus Christ forever and ever. Or we must choose eternal life without Jesus Christ forever and ever. We must choose. And by rejecting Jesus' salvation, we have chosen judgment. Oh, I've had it said to me before, well, I'm not ready yet to receive Christ. I still need to sow my oats. My brother-in-law said that to me. Come and talk to me when I'm 30. I never forgot it. When he turned 30, I called him up. Come and talk to me when I'm 40. Well, the next step is 50. When is the time for your salvation? These shall be punished. Listen. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power forever and ever. Radical statement. Now, in Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus is comforted in paradise by Abraham. The rich man was burning in torments of flame, and his senses were very much alive. He could see, he could hear, he could taste, he could smell, he could feel. But Paul says here, the greatest of the punishment will be separation from God's presence for eternity. Now, the word to be punished here is a strong Greek word. And he's speaking of in the Greek here, it's the final punishment. It's the final step in a court of law. It's a court term. And you know, there are those that go to court and you have appeals and you have appeals. And, and even some of the guys that go into, you know, death row, it's hard to believe. How long have you been in death row? I've seen some of these, you know, uh, documentaries. Oh, I've been 25 years in death row. That should have killed you itself. Knowing one day that you're going to receive that lethal injection. Knowing one day. But here Paul is saying the word for punishment. The final step in the court of law. Pay the final penalty. Suffer the judgment. And that judgment is death. Final execution of sentence. Eternal hell forever and ever. Total separation from God. Total separation. Radical statement. Look at verse 10 now. And when he comes, speaking of Christ, in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired, I like that, among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Paul's encouraging the church at Thessalonica. Young church, vibrant church, filled with the Spirit. But they're going through trials. They're going through hardship. Man, the Judaizers are attacking us. The church, I mean, the Roman Empire is attacking us. Hang on. 
And so Paul's encouragement here in verse 10, when Jesus returns in that day, in that day, and we know that there has to be the rapture of the church. And then there has to be that league set up by Antichrist. Then there's going to be the seven years of tribulation. And then the parousia, Christ will return. He's encouraging them. And as we shared earlier in Revelation 1-7, every eye shall see him. Jesus will be glorified in his church through you, through me, through the church at Thessalonica, through all believers, the saints of God. Listen to this, past, present, and future. Jesus will be admired. Listen, the word admired there that is used, uh, it's going to be a great wonder, a great marvel, a great uh, amazement among all those who believe. And we're in heaven. Man, we made it. I, I was thinking of this concept. I I imagine the tribulation saints. They didn't take the mark of the beast spoken of in Revelation chapter 13. They made it through the seven years of tribulation. They were not beheaded. Imagine the great elation, the great joy, the great rejoicing. Why? Because of the testimony of the church, the testimony of the saints. All the church testimony. Imagine some of those that you've witnessed to, some of those that I've witnessed to, some of those that... I probably have never met, and somebody handed them a CD or a tape. Somebody that came to Saving Grace. You know, when we went to Russia, we took all kinds of teaching that was translated into Russian, and we left it out there. We took a Russian praise, and we left it out there. I always wonder one day if a babushka is going to come up to us when we get to heaven. Hey, remember me? No, but I got one of your tapes. or You know, I can just imagine it. Great elation. Oh, man. Praise God what he's done. Now, Paul comes to the conclusion of this first chapter. Verses 11 and 12 is Paul's prayer. Let me read it, and then I'm going to go back up and make some commentary real quick. Because in verse 11, it's a three-point prayer. He begins in verse 11, Therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Paul, as we have shared many times, like King David, like Nehemiah, Paul was a man of prayer. He prayed for all the saints. He prayed for all the churches. But especially here, as he's writing to the church at Thessalonica in the second letter, especially to the church at Thessalonica. Paul holds three-fold message of prayer. Now, go with me to Luke chapter 21, verse 34. And here's the first portion of verse 11. God would count them worthy of their call. God counts you. He counts me. Worthy of your call. The call to ministry? Yes, but what about the call to salvation? The call to saving grace. And you're going to go through trials. You're going to go through hardships. So Paul says in the beginning of his prayer that God would count them, the church at Thessalonica, worthy of their call. In Luke chapter 21, uh, there Jesus begins to speak about watchfulness. In verse 34, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with 
carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you unexpectedly. Speaking of uh, the day, the thief of the night, the rapture of the church. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. In other words, those that were not ready for Christ. And so here's the encouragement in verse 36. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. I believe strongly that the church is not appointed unto wrath but that the seven years of tribulation is to woo the nation of Israel back to God. But in that process, there's going to be Gentiles also. Now in verse 11, the second part of the prayer, that God would bless the saints at Thessalonica. Church, God wants to bless you. And be careful with the faith and prosperity preachers. God wants to bless you. If we obey God's word, He's going to bless you. There's a beautiful scripture, two chapters I want you to study. In Deuteronomy chapter 27 and in chapter 28. There in the Old Testament, they would go up to those two mountain ranges and they would go up there and then the priesthood would come down to the people and they would shout out the curses and the blessings. Obviously, you were going to be cursed if you weren't doing the obedience to God. But he was going to bless you. If you obeyed him, and it speaks about blessing, you know, their hands, blessing their food, blessing uh, the kneading troughs. I mean, everything. It's a beautiful picture. And then he goes to the third point here. Their work of faith with power would be glorified in and through their lives. The testimony of God's Holy Spirit working in and through this young church, the church at Thessalonica. Flip back real quick. First Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at verses 2 and 3 here. We give thanks to God always for you. He says, making mention of you in our prayers. Remembering, and I like this, without ceasing, your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our Lord God and Father. And now here in verse 11, their work of faith with power. The word power is dunamis. Back in Acts chapter 2, the power of the Holy Spirit fell upon the early church. And so Paul's encouragement, always to the church, but here to the church at Thessalonica. And look at how he concludes verse 12 this morning. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, the church at Thessalonica, in you this morning, the church at Calvary Chapel, and you in him, according to the grace of our God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's prayer. Man, that the grace of God, that it honors God himself, that it's in you, that you're one of his, that God has saved you, sanctified you, set you apart. Paul's telling the church at Thessalonica, you're not going through the tribulation. You're going through some hurts and pains. You're going through some trials, some tribulations. You're going through some hardships, but this isn't it. Don't believe those that are telling you that the rapture's already taken, God's left you behind. Persevere. Persevere. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that it would be glorified in you and through you, according to the grace of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture. You see, Paul had such a love, and he had such a compassion and a grace towards this beautiful small church that was on fire. 
You see, we always look for mega churches. But it's those little insignificant churches that we say, ah, it's too small. But do they have the love of God? Oh, it's too small. But are they seeing people come to saving grace? And you know why people want a big church? Excuse me. So that nobody knows what you're doing. You see, you miss church here. Pastor Jeff saying, where are they at? I don't see them. I didn't see Larry last week. Where was he? <laughs> but in a big church, you hide. Sorry, Larry. Where's Bob and Peggy? Where you guys been? You see? That's what happens. And that's the beauty. You get a small church on fire for Jesus. They're going to hear about you in Macedonia and Acacia. That's what Paul said. He loved this little church. Hey, these Judaizers are nothing. The Roman Empire, nothing. Wait till the seven seals are opened. Wait till the seven trumpets are sounded. Wait till the seven vials are poured out. Trials. Well, when that 100-pound hail with mixed fire falls, I'll put on a hard hat. Go for it. Get a good hard hat. And you'll be part of that hard hat. <laughs> Let's all stand. We'll end with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for the church at, at Thessalonica, Lord. We thank you for uh, their example as a model church that we spoke about in the first letter. They were such an example to so many. Lord, they're an example to the church the last 1950 years. Thank you that we can draw from the nuggets of, of the Holy Spirit from this book. Teach us, Lord. Because the church is still here, the rapture of the church has not taken place. And the tribulation cannot start until the church is removed. That which is hindering, I believe it's the Holy Spirit in the church. Father, bless your people as they've come. Before we conclude with every eye closed, every head bowed, maybe there's somebody here this morning and you're not right with God. You've not made that commitment or maybe you're so backslidden, you need to rededicate that life. And we're not here to embarrass anybody. But I want to encourage you, if that's you this morning, raise your hand. I want to say a quick, simple prayer of faith with you. If you need salvation this morning, raise your hand. And I'll just say a simple prayer. Anybody here? I see your hand way in the back. Praise the Lord. Anybody else would like to come to saving grace? I see your hand right there in the back. Praise the Lord. Anybody else would like to make that commitment to Christ? Let's pray for these two beautiful saints. Father, thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit that brings conviction on our hearts, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this young man and, and for this lady over here that both have raised their hands to you, Lord. Touch them, Lord. Minister to their hearts, Lord. As they acknowledge that they are sinners just like we were, just like we still are. But sinners now saved by grace. Lord, as they confess their sins to you, the Bible says you're faithful, you're just to forgive them. Lord, forgive them of all of their sins, past, present, and future. And Lord, come into their lives now. Tabernacle in their hearts, Lord. Fill them with the Holy Spirit of power. Give them a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Give them a hunger and a thirst for your word. Lord, lead them and guide them into your truth. We pray blessings upon them. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.